0: So it's always nice when it starts with some applause for doing nothing of substance. But This evening, um, I get to preach on one of the passages that I find the most entertaining and interesting in the New Testament, a great passage on prayer. And it's a passage that I personally have never heard preached before, but I think is a great one to talk about prayer and what the importance of prayer is. And so that's what our sermon kind of topic is going to be. But I want to start with a question to keep in mind. Why don't we pray more often? What is it that stops us from praying more often than we do? And I can think of a number of reasons. I came up with a list um, that hopefully is at least mostly complete of the, the major reasons that keeps us from praying. Some people might not pray because they don't believe, obviously, if you are an atheist, agnostic, um, or somebody who believes maybe that there is a God, but God is not concerned with what's happening in our everyday world, then of course you would not be praying, and that makes a lot of logical sense. But from my experience, even most people, even if they're not particularly religious, they will often pray, at least at times, in the big moments, whether in crisis, some horrible thing that might be happening and you have to pray about a car accident or something like that, or in hope, you're about to ask the woman you love to marry you. That's a great time to pray, right? Um, in fact, in, in Tolstoy's um, Anna Karenina, his novel, um, there's a figure, uh, Levin, who is sort of semi-autobiographical. And Tolstoy, as sort of Levin, records a time when he, as agnostic, at the birth of his child, starts praying even though he doesn't believe in God. But there's just this natural reflex within human nature, I think, that very often, even if we're not terribly religious, we hope that there's something somewhere out there, the universe or somebody who will hear us, and so we pray. So for a few people, they might not pray because they don't believe, but I think most people at least believe enough to give it a try, right? Can't hurt anything. So why else might we not pray more often? Sometimes I think it's out of distraction. Maybe we're busy with school or activities. Maybe we're just distracted because in the few free moments we have, we look at our smartphone. Uh, Maybe we're watching Netflix, whatever it is. Sometimes it's just habit. We maybe are trained in the habit of praying before a meal, a quick prayer or something, but we don't have the habit to pray. Sometimes I think it also could be self-sufficiency. We believe we can do it ourselves and it seems a little bit too low to pray and ask God for help. We wanna just solve our own problems. But I would say one of the biggest reasons, and this is the one we'll focus on tonight and I think the passage talks about, is we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that prayer makes a difference in the real world. And maybe you've come across this theological riddle before, but if God is all good and if God is all knowing, Doesn't he know better than I do what should happen? So why should I pray? God shouldn't listen to me. He knows better. He's a better person than I am. Shouldn't he just do what's best anyway? What can I add to the process? Or maybe you've also just don't pray or don't see the effects of prayer, don't believe prayer really affects the real world because you don't see it happening. Maybe you've prayed for things, but you haven't noticed it making much of a difference in your life. It's that last concern, our belief that prayer doesn't make a difference in the real world, that I want to tackle tonight and look at. And we're going to look at this from a passage in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And from it, I think we'll see the needs that we should bring to God. We'll see some examples of the manner in which we should bring those needs to God. And finally, we'll learn about the effect it can have in the real world. So first of all, the need that we bring to God in prayer. What I'm looking at tonight is a particular type of prayer that is called intercessory or supplication or something like that, but basically it's a prayer where we bring a request to God. That specific form of prayer is the type I'm talking about. There are other types. There are types of prayer where we adore God or thank God. There are prayers where we confess something to God. there's also lament, and there's a sense of prayer that's just a simple conversation. All of those are valid forms of prayer, and there are other things happening in prayer. I think we are being formed by what we pray. We are building a relationship with God, but again, I want to come down to the specific type of prayer that is a request made to God, a prayer of intercession, and ask what effect that has on God. So let's begin reading in Acts 12, 1 through 5, and look at the need that the church in Jerusalem brings in this case. So, Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also, This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, Peter, he, Herod, put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So let me set the stage for you here. There are a number of people by the name of Herod in the New Testament, and this is the third Herod out of four that you can meet in the New Testament. And his fuller name is Herod Agrippa I. And he reigned in Jerusalem from 41 to 44 AD. So we know the window of time at which this is happening. And this is a period in the life of the church in Jerusalem when it was deteriorating and there was persecution coming upon them. So a few chapters earlier... Uh, In the book of Acts, we heard about the first Christian killed for the faith, a, a man by the name of Stephen, who was killed for being a Christian. And here at the start of this passage, one of the inner three disciples, one of the three most important people in the early Christian movement, James, who we hear about a lot in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John, that James is killed for the faith. And now, even worse, we have Peter, who was called by Jesus the rock, the person upon whom the early leadership of the church would come to. He is imprisoned. And it's been several days, and there are rotating sets of four guards each around him, and so there's no chance that he's going to escape on any human terms. And in fact, the NIV probably has mistranslated or missed the sense of one point here— The Greek literally just says that Herod is going to bring him out the next day. And the NIV has added, brought him out for public trial. But actually the sense is probably bring him out for public execution. Tomorrow is likely the day of Peter's death, unless something happens. So this is basically the low point of any action movie, right? Um, I'm sad that, you know... Christian DeShiel is not here this evening because I'm going to make a Star Wars reference, and I would have really liked the credit of uh, getting that. But early on in Star Wars Return of the Jedi, the third movie of that, that, the first set that came out in the 70s to 80s, there's this moment when Obi-Wan Kenobi has long been dead, Yoda is dying on Dagobah, Princess Leia is a slave to Jabba the Hutt, and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker are both sentenced to death in the giant mouth of Sarlacc. I had to look it up to remember, but it's this big like worm thing in the desert It's about to gobble them all down and everything. And it's that moment when it looks like the entire movement is about to die. Every major character is in this suspenseful, difficult place, and you're wondering what is going to happen. This is the moment the church is facing. James, one of the inner three, is dead. Stephen, another prominent member, has been killed. And now Peter, the central member, the person Jesus entrusted the leadership of the early Christian movement, is likely dying the very next day. So this is a big need that the church brings before God. And and again, we hear in verse five that the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So the first thing we're going to learn about here is then the needs that we bring to God. And This is the question that I've often gone before, back and forth on before, but what kinds of needs should we bring to God? Obviously, if we have a big need, like the church was facing, that makes sense as something to bring before God, but what about small things? So for example, this is a theological question I've actually discussed with various different people, and I've gone back and forth a little bit on the answer, but I see I have a a person who agrees with me that the Broncos are a wonderful team, right here in the front, so good job, Arnell. uh, exactly. I had to get the, the crowd engaged. But um, is it right for me to pray that the Denver Broncos gain a little bit of vengeance after that horrible Super Bowl loss to the Seattle Super Sonics? what am I even saying? Seahawks, Supersonics are totally, that's bad. Anyway, it's been a while. There used to be a Seattle Supersonics. Um, anyway, the Seattle Seahawks and win their home opener against them. Is that the sort of thing... I should pray about. Have you ever thought about that? Can I pray about the outcome of a sports game? Um, Something trivial like that. On the whole, I usually come to no. When I think about the Bible, I can't think of anybody praying about something quite as trivial as whether their equivalent of a professional sports team wins a game. But sometimes I actually think maybe it's better just to admit that this is actually what you really care about Pray to God and figure that God knows whether you should be praying for it or not anyway. But I do think the general pattern is whether it's a big or a small need, bring it to God. God knows whether it's really an important thing or not to be praying about. And certainly with the bigger things in life, yes, we need to commit those to prayer. But really, there's a sense, and I love this about the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah, if you read his book, He's praying all the time, little situations, when he gets himself into a little bind or he needs a little confidence or something like that. They're all these little quick prayers. And you get the sense from Nehemiah: pray in every occasion. Bring everything to God. And I think that's what we're seeing the church do here in a big thing. Don't just try to rely on yourself. Don't just get frustrated or stressed, but bring your needs, your desires, your concerns to God. And then once you have done your best in the situation and prayed about it, rest in the results that will happen. So that's the first thing I think we see here, is the need and what to do about that. Bring our needs before God. Second, I think we get some sense of the manner in which we can pray from a few little choice verses in Acts chapter 12. But I wanna say, first of all, that there doesn't seem to be any set formula to how we should pray when you look at the Bible. You can find across scripture lots of different options. Sometimes people are bowing their heads in prayer, other times raising their hands. Sometimes they're praying on big occasions and other times on small. You can see public prayers and private prayers. You can see in the book of Psalms prayers in sackcloth and fasting, you can see so, uh, prayers that take place in the middle of a nighttime song. You can see prayers and tears and solitude, but also prayers in rejoicing. In the book of Daniel, in the sixth chapter, we find Daniel on his knees in an upstairs room with his window open, facing Jerusalem, praying three times a day. Jesus, at one point, counsels that we should pray in in, in a room with a door closed to make sure that we're not showing off our religiosity. But on other occasions, Jesus himself will pray quite publicly with others in view. So I don't think there's like one set of way we have to pray. There's no manner. We don't have to close our eyes and bow our heads every single time necessarily. But I do think this passage gives us a few examples of ways we can pray, at least in certain times. And the first one comes from verse 5, and I think we should always pray earnestly. So verse 5 says, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The etymology of this Greek word here is like the idea of stretching out or grasping for something. Sometimes I think we pray as the Lord wills and and just have this nice heavenly sense that, God, do whatever you would please, and a nice pacifistic kind of sense, but we get the sense when you read the Psalms that people are very bold in saying, this is what I want to happen, God. Pray with that boldness. Tell God what you want to happen. If there are five choices on the table and you prefer choice C, tell God that you'd prefer choice C. In fact, Jesus himself concludes a parable about the need to keep bringing your prayers to God repeatedly over and over, he says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Trust that God wants to hear your prayers and is listening to you. So pray earnestly. The second thing we see from this passage is that at least on some occasions, it's right to pray in ways that are inconvenient to you. In verse six, we don't know exactly the night, the time of night that this is happening, but we do know it's the night before Herod was about to bring Peter to trial, or probably to execution, and Peter himself had already fallen asleep. And we learn later in the story that the church is praying at that present moment, so we should probably think about sometime around 11 p.m. or midnight. The church is still gathered well past bedtime, so to speak, and they're praying for Peter in this situation. And I wonder, have you ever prayed in a time that's inconvenient to you, or in a way that's inconvenient to you? When I was in college, I was part of uh, what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ, it's now just called Crew, Christian organization on a state campus. And all of the schools in the Denver metro area committed for a seven-day period to pray 24 hours a day. And we all had to go to one place in downtown Denver, and there was a site where we would sign up for two-hour blocks and just agree to be there and pray. And I remember praying from, as I recall, something like 2 to 4 a.m. in this place that I was not familiar with in downtown Denver, and we were praying for missionaries And I remember being really tired and not so happy about waking up at 1 a.m. to drive down and go and pray and having kind of the lost sleep in the middle of the night. And yet in the midst of that, being here at this place alone, praying from 2 to 4 a.m., it was a very powerful experience. So I wouldn't say it's all the time, but I think sometimes we should pray in ways that are inconvenient. It helps us. Um, I think, invest in the prayer. And that's what the church was doing here. Peter might die the very next day, and so they said, we're going to stay up all night and pray for him. The third thing that I would say that we learn here is that it often, at least, should be together. Uh, We learn in verse 12 that they were praying at the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and praying. So I do think there are times to pray alone, but Often, it's good to pray together because that builds community. I think of it in this way. If the need that we're bringing is shared, then the prayers that we give should also be shared. Pray together. So in our manner, I think prayer should always be fervent. Sometimes I think it should be inconvenient to us, and often it should be together with other believers. So we've talked about the needs that we bring before God. We've talked a little bit about the manner in which we bring prayers to God. But what I want to focus on the most this evening is the effect that it has. Because again, that's where we started. What effect in the real world is there to prayer? And my main point tonight is going to be that prayers offered to God have astounding power. And I don't think this is what we often think of. In fact, Now, I have to admit, I'm not a country music fan. I didn't grow up liking country music or really listening to it too much, but I have married my wife, Amy, and she really likes country music, enough so that I have gone to a Garth Brooks concert at 12.30 at night, on a Friday night one time, and listened to Friends and Loaves Places and all of those Garth Brooks songs. And if any of you are Garth Brooks fans, you might know one of his songs is Unanswered Prayers. And he has this song about I thank God for unanswered prayers with the basic point of he was in high school and he was praying for this relationship to work out and it didn't work out. God did not answer his prayer. And instead, he ended up meeting the woman he would marry and when he meets this old flame from high school, he realizes he's really glad he's not married to her but instead to his wife, right? So I thank God for unanswered prayers, this nice kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek but also with a good message, that sometimes we are very glad when God says no to us. But my concern is that very often we just sort of always assume that God's not going to answer our prayers and that we just expect unanswered prayers. And I think in the cases when we do that and we don't expect anything to happen, we're actually in very good company. Let me read the remainder of this passage to you and show you that no one in the story actually expected the prayers to be answered, despite their fervence. So we start in verse 6, picking up the story with Peter. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, again, most likely this is actually bring him out to execution. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened them for them by themselves, right? This is like something from, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or something like that, where you come to this like secret thing and the gate just opens and they walk out. It opened them for them by themselves and they went through it. After they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then, and only at this point, after he's made his full escape and left the entire area, Peter came to himself and said, wait a second, this isn't fake, right? Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Peter does not expect this to work. Now, this is somewhat funny because Peter's actually already had one miraculous escape in the book of Acts back in chapter Five, this is not actually the first time that God freed him from prison miraculously overnight. And yet Peter himself doesn't believe it's happening until after the angel has left him. But I think more ironic than Peter's astonishment at this process, because Peter didn't necessarily know the church was praying for him, the church is even more ironic in their response here. So we continue in verse 12. When this had dawned on him, on Peter, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. By the way, this is the Mark who wrote Mark's gospel, most likely, at least. Where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that, rather than opening the door and letting him in, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door! Now, remember the context. This is exactly what they're praying for. Peter is in the clutches of death, and they are praying for his release. They are praying for a miracle. So what's their response when God answers their prayer? Is it, thank God, he has done a miracle. No, the church says, you're out of your mind, they told her, told Rhoda. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. They still cannot believe, and they actually think it's more likely that there's like a guardian angel who looks like Peter, rather than Peter actually being released according to their prayers, that they will not listen to the servant, Rhoda, who tells them Peter's at the door. Peter's been freed. Our prayers have been answered. And though they are praying at midnight fervently, They can't actually come to believing God would answer their prayers. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, this is a different James, James the brother of Jesus. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and he then left for another place. I can't help but imagine that, I don't know if you ever do this, but like if I'm writing an email um, and I'm sort of amused by a joke I'm writing in the email, I sort of smirk to myself. I always imagine Luke writing this story smirking to himself, right? This is a good little subtle humor that the the group praying for Peter's release can't actually believe it when it happens. But I think this is so human and so much like us. The church is praying but they don't really believe it's going to happen. More likely, they're actually praying in complaint. God, why is this happening? Resignation, oh God, it's so sad that this is happening. Lament, but they're not actually believing that God might answer their prayers. And I wonder how often this has been you, because I can tell you it's been me a lot. And so I would encourage you to be Rhoda. Be Rhoda in this story. She alone believes, and she is so excited about it, she forgets to let Peter in. But this is exactly the point of the story. God does answer prayer. Our prayers have real effect on the world. Not only is it here in Acts 12, but in James 4, 2 assumes that prayers have real effect on the world. When James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Our requests can be answered. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, says this, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then Jesus gives an analogy. Which of you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? That'd be a pretty mean dad. Hey dad, I want some pancakes. Here's some pebbles, son. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. Just because we make a request of God, this is not a blanket promise that God has to answer. It's always right to remember that Jesus himself, in his most ardent prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed to avoid crucifixion and God said no. So our requests are not always going to receive a yes, but I do think we should pray assuming that God wants to say yes. God wants to say yes to our prayers and we should pray in such a way that we believe God wants to say yes to what we're praying for, and will say yes if it is advisable in his divine plan to do so. So what then about these problems that I raised at the start? Now, the passage doesn't tell us directly um, what the reasons are and why we don't always believe and so forth, but I think we can answer a couple of things or ways to kind of believe in the effects in the real world. um, For... Yeah, basically how to believe better that prayers do get answered. And I would say there are a couple of things that I would suggest. First of all, to the degree our problem is we just don't notice when God answers our prayer, I think maybe we need to get in the habit of praying prayers of thanksgiving as often as we pray prayers of supplication. For as many times as we make a request of God, we should also go back and think, what are prayers that God has answered? and thank God for those prayers. Sometimes I think we don't believe prayers have effect in the real world because God answers them and then we forget about the need and we just go on to the next thing. So we need to look back and remember all the times that God has answered our prayers. So thank God for the answered prayers in your life and you might start noticing how often God does answer your prayers. But then there's the other problem of the riddle. If God is all good and God is all knowing, why should my prayer affect him? Shouldn't he do the right thing? Anyway, and this is a hard riddle in certain ways. Um, My colleague Professor Bronlewy is here, so you can get his take. Maybe he's got some good answers as well, but I'll give you my two thoughts for why I think God would listen to our prayers. First of all, I think it can be training for us. If God, when we pray for the right things, will answer our prayers, then that's kind of confirmation that these are the right desires and things to be praying for, and it can be training for us in the spiritual life. By answering our prayers, we are becoming better people, more the kind of people that God wants us to be. But I would also say this, from the very beginning of creation, God has always invited humanity to be sort of secondary creators alongside of him. God gives Adam and Eve the garden, and He doesn't just have the world already perfect, but He says, go tend the garden, go do things, name the animals. God invites us to be secondary creators alongside of Him. He always has the sovereignty over the process, but He wants our input within it. And I think that's what prayer allows us to do. It allows us to join God on a secondary level in the process of world history and to recapture that original mandate that was given to humanity to go make something of the world. This is what God has given us to do. These are at least my answers for why God would listen to our prayers. So, tonight, we're in a series called Practically Speaking, and I must admit that I'm not typically a very practical person. I tend to be far more theoretical. So let me end by just giving you, again, some practical guidelines to recap what we've said. How should you pray? I would say these four things are things you can remember. First of all, needs. Address God with the needs in your life, both small and big, individual and community-oriented. Don't just stew over your problems, and don't just try to solve them on your own. First of all, pray to God with your needs. Second of all, in the manner in which you pray, I would say, All situations call for fervent prayer. Sometimes that prayer should be inconvenient to you, but very often it should be prayers together. It builds community and it brings us together. Third, bring expectation into the process. Learn from the church in Jerusalem who prayed for things they didn't actually expect to happen. And so I would say, make your request to God expecting that he wants to answer yes. Not that every time he will answer yes, but that he desires and delights in giving positive answers to our prayers. And fourth and finally, results. Be pleased or at least content with the results of your prayers, whether those are yes or no, because you know that God is doing what is best in his divine plan. Thank you for joining me on this evening. Let me pray for us, and then I will dismiss you all. So, Father, I thank you for this passage on prayer and what it teaches us, how human this church in Jerusalem is and how they also needed to learn about believing um, in the astounding power of prayer, that they were praying without believing and yet you still answered their prayer. And I pray that would be a lesson for us, we who are timid and insecure and uncertain in our own prayers. I pray that this church would be a lesson for us and that you would answer our prayers and encourage us in the way of spiritual, the spiritual discipline of prayer. We thank you that you are a good father, that you listen and hear. It's in your name we pray.